Is everybody comfortable? All right. We're going to receive the offering then. Uh, want to go tonight to John's first epistle. Now, not John's gospel, but John's first epistle, chapter 3. Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st John. 1st John, and we'll just read a couple of verses from the third chapter. First so John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The Apostle John was the elder statesman of the church, of all of the original apostles he was the one who lived the longest. Of all of the apostles, apart from Judas who hanged himself, uh, he did not die a martyr's death. He lived to be a very old man. And he was, for the latter part of his years, uh, for want of a better term, he was the senior pastor of the church at Ephesus. And you see that in his epistles, particularly you see his, his age, his maturity, his position within the church because when he addresses the church, he calls them my little children. A very endearing term because to this old warrior, this old elder statesman of the church, they were his little children, as it were. John was called the apostle of love. You remember it was John in his gospel Whenever there was a times he referred to himself, it was always referring to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one that's always pictured leaning close to him at the dinner table. And uh, we know that he was the apostle of love. And his love for uh, the church never waned. His love for Christ never diminished. And whenever he writes, he writes... Uh, from a heart of love. And the words that we just read together could only be written by a man who loved his God passionately and intimately. And there is much in these epistles, and I just want to draw out just some thoughts regarding the verses that we have read together, because if we begin to unpack it, uh, you'll see that these are beautiful words and very profound words indeed. And sometimes we read these things and we kind of flit over and skip over them, not fully uh, getting the impact of what the writer is saying. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Let's look at that first 
beautiful sentence. Beloved, now are we the children of God. Notice the present tense. Now, right now are we the children of God. Be in no doubt about it. Those who have received Christ as their Savior, they are right now a child of God. It is an accomplished fact. It is an undeniable truth. You are a child of God. This is not wishful thinking. This is not something we're hoping for. This is not something way out there in the future. This is right now a reality. You are a child of God. You have been engrafted. You have been adopted into the family of God. Tonight you are a child of God. You are legally and vitally an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? amen. Now, you may and you will grow in Christ in the knowledge of the Lord. And for sure, you will come into a greater understanding of who you are in Christ. But right now, you are a child of God. And you will be no more a child of God in a million years than you are right now at this present time. Now John was concerned about the state of the church. He warned about the spirit of Antichrist, which was abounding. He speaks to them about the spirit of truth. And he warns them about the spirit of error that had crept in. He also warns them about how they deal with one another. He says, if you hate your brother, you're still in darkness to this day. And so he warns them and admonishes them to love one another. And so in the midst of all this schism and all this error and animosity that had flooded into the church, he didn't want them to lose their identity as a child of God. What a privilege. What an honor. And what a responsibility is ours to be one of his sons and one of his daughters. He took us into his family and he gave us his name. Beloved, now, right now, we are the children of God. Isn't that lovely? Because sometimes, you know, maybe we forget who we really are and the importance of who we really are. And then he says, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You know, you should underline, or at least mentally underline those two words, not yet. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, there is more in store for us than we currently know and can see. This not yet means that God has got some surprises up his sleeve, as it were, for us. Thank God for that. And that's why Paul says that right now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now, there's a lot that we do know, and there's a lot that we can know, and there's a lot that we will, will know in this life. As long as we live, we're always learning and discovering new things about Christ and through his word. But having, even if we live all of our life knowing more and understanding more, there is yet much more ahead that we just don't even understand or begin to understand. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. 
He's preparing our place for over 2,000 years. What a place that's going to be that he is preparing. You remember the Apostle Paul when he said, in his own words, he says, he was caught up into the third heaven. And while he was there, that God showed him amazing things. Incredible scenes unfolded before his eyes. And they were so amazing and so incredible that God said, you're not allowed to share this with another human being. God deliberately kept it a secret so that whenever we get there, that we'll see it with our own eyes for the first time. Whenever John, the apostle, whenever he was on the Isle of Patmos and he was sent there in exile for his faith, and you remember how he got that wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, not the book of Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful, wonderful revelation of the Son of God. And you remember how when John saw that and, and, and he begins to unfold and dictate what the Lord was talking about, what he was seeing in vision form and revelation and all the rest of it and, and how he saw and how he spoke in the language of appearance. He had never seen anything like it on earth. He had never seen gold that was like glass, so pure it was like glass. He'd never seen it. He'd never seen the sea, as it were, like crystal. He'd never seen that. He'd never seen the architecture and the sights and the sounds and the colors of heaven. He'd never seen anything like that on earth. And so he, in his limited comprehension, he wrote in the language of appearance. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see there's times he's really struggling to, to say what he sees. Hard for him to explain because how can you explain something that you have nothing to compare by? Nothing on earth like it. And that is why I believe that there is a not yet in this verse. Because right now, all of that is beyond us. It's beyond our grasp. It's beyond our comprehension. Aren't you glad there's a not yet for us? What if we knew all there was to know about heaven? What if God had already revealed all there is to know before we get there? I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad that when we get there, her eyes will just be absolutely opened. You know, I was just thinking today, that just over 400 years ago, 400 years last year to be exact, when old Galileo, that great Italian mathematician and astronomer, whenever he made that little handheld telescope and he pointed it up to the night sky and what looked like a bright star was actually the planet Jupiter. And he was the first man on earth, the first man in all of history to see Jupiter through a telescope, to see those four inner moons, those Jovian moons that ended up being called Galilean moons. What a sight that must have been, the first human being to see that with his own eyes. I remember the first time I ever saw Saturn through a telescope. People had told me about it. I'd seen photographs of it. 
I'd read about it. But the first time I saw it, I will never, ever forget it. With my own two eyes through a telescope, it was a sight to behold. If you're ever going to get a telescope, if you're ever going to look at anything, let that be the first thing you see through your telescope. You'll never forget it. Now, of course, it's not like what you see in a magazine that's taken by Hubble or something like that. But it's just so special, all those little rings around it. And so, whenever Galileo looked up and he saw that for the first time, he was astounded and the whole world was astounded. It changed history. It changed science. It changed astronomy forever. And yet, he only saw it through a little handheld, handmade telescope. If only he could see what we could see today. He had no idea when he looked at that. By the way, when you go out of here tonight, if you look up and you see what you think is the brightest star in the sky tonight, that's the planet Jupiter. And if you had a pair of binoculars and you looked at it, you would see probably four little moons around it. You'd see it with your own eyes. And he didn't know, because he only had a little telescope, he didn't know that that great planet Jupiter was a great big gas giant. <laughs> he didn't know that it wasn't like Earth. A great big gas giant. In fact, it could contain 1,300 Earths. It's so big. not amazing? And he didn't know when he looked through his little telescope that there was a a storm, a hurricane was about to happen later on beyond his time that would be going for at least 300 years. Three times the size of the earth. And if you have a decent telescope and you see Saturn, you see what's called the great red spot. And that's what it is. And he didn't know when he looked and he saw those four little star-like dots because he thought there were stars at the beginning, until a few nights later he realized the stars were moving, and then he realized those are not stars, so they're not fixed. There must be little moons going around Saturn. And he didn't realize the magnificence and the majesty and the mystery that would unfold with what we can see today. The little moon Io, the innermost one, is like a giant pizza if you saw it, that's what it's like. They call it, it's like a big giant pizza if you saw it. Because it's got at least 400 volcanoes all erupting and spewing out hundreds of kilometers into the, into the atmosphere. Continually. Because it's continually, because of gravity in Jupiter, it's continually being, it's been squeezed, gravity squeezing it. And it's just all spewing. You know, if you get a rubber ball and you start squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, so what happens? It gets warm, doesn't it? Because the center, it heats up. And because of gravity squeezing, uh, squeezing Io, then the center gets heated and heated and heated. And then, pew, pew, 400 volcanoes gone off, like big geysers gone off all the time. It's like a great big giant pizza. And then the next one's Europa. And he didn't know because he couldn't see. He didn't know. It was like a big billiard ball. It's dead flat. There's not a mountain. There's not a valley. There's not a crater. It's just ice. Whole surface covered with ice. Like a billiard ball. But he couldn't see that. And then the next one's Ganymede. And Ganymede, now how many people knows that moons are never bigger than planets? 
except Ganymede, because Ganymede is bigger than even Mercury. And it's a mysterious moon. And then Callisto is the most pocked mark moon in the whole of the solar system. But he couldn't see that. It was hid from his eyes. He could just see like, through a glass darkly. But now we're seeing because we've got giant telescopes. We've got space telescopes. We've got probes called Cassini who flies around them. And yet, we still don't know a lot about them. But it is an exciting finding out. For hundreds of years, man has been thrilled and excited about finding out. Wouldn't it be a shame if God told us everything there was to know about heaven and you got there and there was no surprises? And you just walked down to heaven and thought, yeah, that's just what I thought it would be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that in a magazine once and uh, yeah, that's just about it. Wouldn't that be a shame, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great to get to heaven and you just look around you and you're just speechless with what you see? <laughs> so thank God for that not yet. Steve Curtis Chapman, great Christian singer-songwriter. In 2008, he had a terrible tragedy in his wife and family in his life. One of his sons, I believe he was backing out of his garage in his car and he accidentally ran over little sister Maria. And she died. Killed her. Little adopted child. And they were absolutely devastated. And out of that journey for the next couple of years of pain and hurt and devastation and wondering why and where and all the rest of it. And out of all of that, being a songwriter, he began to pen some songs out of that tragedy. And two or three years later, he brought out an album called Beauty Will Rise. Some of you may have that, I'm not sure. And all of the songs are all centered around what happened and about heaven. And one of them especially is especially moving. It's called C, S-E-E, C. And I'm going to read you the story of, because I like to know why writers write their songs, what it comes out of, what the experience is that it comes out of. And so that's the background to this song. But here's the detail of it. I'll just read this. This is, uh, this is just out of, the, out of this album cover. So I'll just take a moment just to read this. It says, This little three-letter word took on an enormous meaning to my family and me on May the 22nd, 2008, the day after Maria went to heaven. Mary Beth, that's his wife, and I went to her house with friends to get some clothes for the next few days. We decided to stay with our friends, the Andersons, until we feel that we could return to our house for good. We walked into the room, we walked from room to room, feeling like we were lost in some terrible dream, and tried to imagine ever living in this house again, and that had, had suddenly become so terribly quiet and empty. And as I walked through the dining room, I noticed a piece of paper on Maria's little art table, where she and her sister would spend hours and hours coloring and drawing and cutting and gluing. 
Maria especially loved the gluing part. And on that piece of paper was a flower that had been drawn and colored with markers. This was one of Maria's signature flowers that she loved to draw. But this one appeared to be unfinished as only one of the six petals was colored with a blue marker. The others were just outlined. Then I noticed something written. Something was written with the marker on the back side of the paper. Now I said, let me back up just for a moment to explain one another thing about this story. Shortly after Maria had been carried away to Jesus, all of us, and particularly Caleb and I, began to talk about how desperate we were just to see something, a dream, a vision, anything that would help confirm in some tangible way that what we were holding on to by faith, that Maria was truly okay, and even more than okay, that she really was safe in the arms of Jesus. It was a plea that I heard all of us say several times in those first few hours. God, please let us just see something. So back to the flower and artwork on the table. I turned the page over and was completely stunned to find a word written on the back in Maria's handwriting. Now to any of our knowledge, she only knew six words that she could write. I love you, mom and dad, and her name, Maria. But there on the back of the paper, she had written in all capital letters the word C, S-E-E. And even as one who is usually careful not to touch much meaning to something more than it deserves, I was and still am completely convinced that this was a precious gift from the broken heart of the Father in heaven delivered through our own daughter's hand the very morning before she left us for heaven. I could picture the face of her little girl smiling at us and saying, See, Mom and Dad, see everybody. It's just like you said, only much better. And I am really okay. It was her father's way of saying, See with eternal eyes. See that I have your little girl safe and sound with me. See by faith my promise of the day that's coming very soon when I will make everything new and wipe every last tear from, those, from your eyes. It wasn't until several days later that we also began to recognize the significance in the unfinished flower that she had drawn on that same paper. Of the six petals, only one was colored in with her favorite color blue. Of her six children, only one has completely colored in and made whole. The rest of us are still waiting for that coming day when finally we will clearly and completely see. And then here's just a verse out of that song. Right now, all I can taste are bitter tears. Right now, all I can see are clouds of sorrow. And from the other side of all this pain, is that you I hear laughing loud and calling out to me, saying, See, it's everything you said it would be, and even better than you would believe. And I am counting down the days until you're here with me, and finally you'll see. But right now, all I can say is, Lord, how long before you come and take away this aching? The night of weeping seems to have no end. But when the morning light breaks through, we'll open up our eyes and we will see it's everything he said that it would be, and even better than we could believe. And he's counting down the days until he says, come with me. Isn't that beautiful? It's better than you would believe. It's better than you would believe. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We are living between the 
right now and the not yet. That's where we're living between. But one day, one day, because then he says, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Now, when I first read this, and I read it many times, but when I first really, really began to think of this, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Dare we believe that? Dare to believe it. Because the Bible says it. We shall be like him. Just to be with him would be wonderful enough for us, wouldn't it? But not for him. He says it's more than just being with him. We shall be like him. That's the promise. Imagine being like him. Imagine being sinless, faultless, pure and holy like him. It's hard for us to imagine that, isn't it? Imagine being in a position right now where we are like him. Listen to what Jude said in Jude 24. This is what God is going to do. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Can you imagine being faultless, sinless, now, right now, you and I are in the process of sanctification, of being separated from the world, thought, word, and deed. Holy Spirit is doing His gracious work in our hearts. He's preparing us, getting us ready. We're not there yet. But one day, when we see Him revealed, we shall be like Him. I, I'm struggling to get my head around this. I don't know who you are, but I am. Because I have never been sinless, faultless. I have never lived in an atmosphere or in a world that's sinless and faultless. So it's hard to imagine it. But one day we'll be in that place. And one day we'll be with Him. And one day we shall be like Him. Could you imagine never ever ever thinking a sinful thought ever thinking even an unkind thought never saying an unkind word ever again can you imagine that can you imagine never ever having an anxious thought or being worried never ever knowing again anything except Pure peace and exceeding joy. <laughs> That's what awaits us. That's what he's like. When it says there, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, does that mean he will have exceeding joy or we will have exceeding joy? I think it means both. I think we'll be exceedingly joyful to be in his presence and to be like him. And I think he will be exceedingly joyful to have us there because that's what he came to die on this earth for. 
He says, I want to show you my glory that I had with the Father before the world began. And what joy that's going to bring to his heart to have us there. Now you can see John being an old man and knowing that his time on earth is limited and coming to a close. You can see why his mind is, is thinking these things. Maybe when you're young, you don't think about the, you're not thinking about heaven, you're not thinking about being with him, you're thinking about the here and now, but you're a little bit older and you realize the old meter's ticking away and you're, you're running out of coins to put in it and <laughs> you realize time has muttered on. But what a future we've got to look forward to. I mean, if this was the end of it, I mean, that would, what would be the point of it? But thank God we shall be like him. See, right now he's preparing us for the coming of the bridegroom. The bride is making herself ready. And one day, very soon, the cry will go up. <laughs> Here comes the bridegroom. Go you out to meet him. Because that's what they did in those days. Now in our day, the bridegroom stands here. I've had countless bridegrooms standing right in that spot, anxiously waiting for their bride to come. The longer the bride waited, the more anxious they became. Most men get very nervous at weddings, more than the woman. They're all big macho men, you know, and then when it comes to the day, most of them are more nervous than the, than the brides. But anyway, in those days it wasn't like that. The bride stayed at home, her home, and she waited until the bridegroom came from his home. And when he came from his home, there was a whole entourage with him. And they were all shouting with lanterns and lights for it, usually at night, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. And as they would get near the village and get near the bride's house, she would hear the cry go up. She must have got excited because her bridegroom's coming for her. She had to do the waiting. And he had to come to where she was from his house to her house. And then whenever he came, he took her from her house to his house. And here we are in our home, this old earth. And one day we'll hear that cry, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And go you out to meet him. And he'll come and he'll take us from our home to his home. And I tell you, his home's a lot better than our home. <laughs> Glory to God. And then there's going to be a wedding. And it's going to be a white wedding. Because <laughs> we'll be all dressed in white. What a wedding that's going to be, Amen. Because the Lord's coming back not for a worldly bride, not for a two-timing bride, but a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He's coming back for those who are looking for His appearance. Those whose lumps are filled with oil and whose wicks are trimmed. They're ready and prepared, waiting, listening for the call. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. And then he writes this. For we shall see him as he is. Now notice what John is emphasizing here. We shall see him as he is. You see, while he was on earth, John saw him as he was. And just for a brief moment in the Mount of Transfiguration... 
He saw him as he would be. But now he said, we shall see him as he is. What a thought. To see him as he is in all his resplendent glory, in all his shining brightness, in all his majesty and power and might. Remember the old song, What a day that shall be when my Savior I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that shall be. And everybody on this side said, Amen. and that side didn't even know what I was talking about. <laughs> You're too young for that one. <laughs> well, most of you anyway. <laughs> What is he like right now? I know people who want to still keep him on a cross. He's not on a cross anymore. <laughs> He's not in a tomb anymore. He's on a throne. <laughs> King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation chapter 4. We're just about ready to close. And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He who sat was there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. See, John is speaking the language of appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed with white robes. They had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes round, around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And wherever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, he sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you and by your will they exist and were created and I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals and when I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it and so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it but one of the elders said to me do not weep behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seas. How many know we're talking about Jesus? And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. 
Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And I looked in the midst of the throne, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all parts of the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him. He sat on the throne. Well, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. See, your prayers are not wasted, saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests unto our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels round the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them is ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and Forever, glory to God. What an image. Let me close with this last image. Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I looked, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. How many knows we're talking about Jesus? His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I felt at his feet as dead. And so would you. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And of the keys of Hades and of death. Glory to God. That's seeing him as he is right now. And that's the one that we will see one day. No wonder John fell at his feet as dead. You know, I... I heard all kinds of people saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to march up to Jesus, and I'm going to ask him this, and I'm going to ask him that. <laughs> John, John's speechless. He had nothing to say. He had nothing to ask. He just fell at his feet as dead. And that's our Savior. That's our Jesus. Amen? What a glorious, glorious Savior. We shall be like him. <laughs> hmm. It is beyond our comprehension, isn't it?
Thank God for the not yet. I don't understand it all. How can you? The longer I live, the more I get to know. And then you open the scripture to God and you think, David, you know nothing. You know absolutely nothing. You're just a novice. You're just a beginner. You're just scratching the surface of what there is to know. People say, I wouldn't want to go to heaven. It's boring. <laughs> boring? Nah. <laughs> Never be boring. Never be boring. Throughout all eternity. Throughout all eternity. It's going to take, the Bible says it's going to take all of eternity for God to show us his riches. <laughs> all eternity. There'll never be a day in heaven when you'll be bored. I see people writing their Facebook all the time, I'm bored, and a big sad face after it. You'll never be bored in heaven. Never. There'll be too much to see and too much to do. Glory to God. Sally doesn't like this part, but I'm glad we'll not need to sleep in heaven. You don't like me talking about working when we get to the glory. <laughs> but you'll be so full of life and energy and power and zest and zing, you'll not be able to sleep. Sometimes, you know, when I go home on Sunday, I can't sleep on Sunday night. My, my, I'm just, my head's just absolutely just bursting with stuff. I can't sleep. I can sleep Monday night, but I can't sleep Sunday night. <laughs> but you get to heaven, you'll you're, you're, you're just be bursting with joy and gladness and just delight and thrill. You don't even want to sleep because you miss something. That'd be good. You know when you're going on your holidays, you can't sleep because, you know, you got a six o'clock flight and every hour you're looking at your watch and you're just, you're just excited to go on holidays. What would be like when you get to heaven, eh? I don't think there'll be any watches. But sure, William, there'll be no watches in heaven. Surely not, eh? Be a wonderful place to be, amen? Come on, stand with us. Lord, just even talking about you makes us excited. Just even thinking right now of what you are like is just so thrilling to know that. What a joy it's going to be. What a delight to be in your absolute presence. Lord, whenever we see you with our own eyes for the first time, what a moment that's going to be. Lord, our hearts will be bursting with joy and gladness. So we thank you for this new life that you have given to us. Lord, we're glad that we're saved tonight. Glad, Lord, that you snatched us from the pit. Glad, Lord, that you took us from the chains of the devil, Lord, and you set us free. We're glad, Lord, tonight that we know you, that we love you, that we serve you. What a thrill that is, Lord, to know that tonight. Lord, there's millions out there tonight, Lord, and they don't know you. Never, Lord, even think about you. Lord, help us to reach them. Help us, Lord, to bring them under the sound of the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to lead men and women to Christ. Lord, that they may too go to heaven. They may too see you face to face. Lord, this is too good to keep to ourselves. We must share this, Lord. So, Lord, we honor you and we give you glory and we praise you and we bless you for who you are tonight. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your blood that cleansed us. Thank you, Lord, for putting our names in the book of life tonight. We give you glory for that in Jesus' name. And all who are going to heaven and are glad about it, say, Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Praise the Lord.